creation. All right, it's a big, it's one of the big Bible words. And funny enough, I was talking about this this morning with some people. Is uh, it's in the book of First John, which, uh, if you know a little bit about uh, Bible study and things like that, is you, you'll know that John isn't the most educated man. So he's you. John is the one that's using this big Bible word. So it's kind of interesting. The rest of First John's pretty easy to understand, and then all of a sudden he uses this word propitiation. It's like, wow, that came out of nowhere. You know, but uh, this word is very, very important. Uh, it is probably, it sums up the gospel really in, in one word. Uh, and that basically is that Jesus is enough, right? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I find it uh, interesting. I didn't plan this out this way, but it's fitting that we're talking about propitiation on Memorial Day weekend. Uh when we're celebrating all of the men and women who have given their lives for our country, that we can have freedom, uh, we're going to be talking this morning about Jesus who gave his life and his blood so that we could have freedom from sin and that we can go to heaven. And so that's such an awesome thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up God's word. Dear Lord, I, I thank you so much for all of the men and women that have died for this country, Lord. And I I pray, Lord, that as we move forward this morning, that uh, you would allow us now to focus on you and your word uh, and uh, allow us to have joy in the fact that you gave your life uh, so that we could have freedom from sin, Lord. And I, I pray, Lord, that as we move forward this morning, that you keep our hearts and our minds open to what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you would open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start off with the verse from last week, uh, and I'll read the second verse here along with it. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, My little children, these things I write to you, that you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so I already told you what propitiation means, is that Jesus is enough. And so, therefore, I'm, I'm done preaching. We can all go home. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Got to make sure you guys get your money's worth today, right? No. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, but first of all, let's, let's look at this a little bit deeper. Uh, what does propitiation mean? Okay, what does propitiation mean? And so we're going to actually talk about the Greek a little bit because it's important. Uh, so the Greek word is halosmos. And so if you can't read that, don't worry. Uh, nobody else could read it either. All right. Um, but that is the that is the word halosmos. Uh, the interesting thing about that word is now the word propitiation shows up in the Bible uh, multiple times or atonement is, is pretty much the same word. Uh, it shows up in the Bible multiple times. But this specific Greek word uh, only shows up twice in the New Testament. So this word only shows up twice. And funny enough, uh, both times is in 1 John. And specifically uh, means propitiation or atonement. Now, there are other Greek words for propitiation, and those also have other meanings as well. But this, is, this one is specific to propitiation. So John is making sure we, he, we know that this is specifically what he is talking about nothing else. And so uh, it's very interesting that he uses that word there. Uh, we were talking this morning, John must have conferred with some of 
his other brethren, you know, and is like, okay, what's a good word that I can use for this? Because John's a very, he, we have to understand that John uh, didn't really have much of an education. He's not like Paul. Paul, when you read Paul in the Greek and stuff, and uh, he's like at a college level, you know, but John is like at like a third grade level. Okay? So it, it's kind of interesting. We were joking and I said, you know, I, I've taken four years of Greek. And I'm like, oh, so you can, you can read the Bible in Greek. And I'm like, well, yes and no. I can read anything written by John. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty much the extent of my Greek level. Now, if I try to read some of the epistles, I can, I can pick out some of the words, but uh, Paul uses big words all the time. You know? so, uh, but John, I can pretty much read it. But, uh, uh, that's not saying that much. Like I said, I probably have like a third grade Greek level. You know? um, but uh, this is very interesting here. So what is the actual definition of this word propitiation? Um, so if you look it up on Google, um, you'll see that this word means uh, that which appeases or brings to a state of peace. So that which appeases or brings to a state of peace. Now specifically what this means in context here uh, is that this means the satisfying payment for the sin of man to reconcile God and man. So that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came so that we could have peace between uh, us and God. That's an awesome thing. So now let's look at Jesus specifically. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, before we look at that, I want us to understand what things were like before Jesus came. Uh, let's look at past sacrifices in the Bible here, because this is, this is very important to our understanding of what Jesus actually did. Uh, we may look at it, and we, we know today that Jesus dying on the cross is very significant. We understand that. But you have to understand, to the people at that time, the Hebrew people, this was way more significant than we can even imagine. Because you have to understand for you know, a thousand, couple thousand years, uh, they were doing all these sacrifices in place of Jesus coming, right? And so they had to do this stuff all the time. They were under the law, and this is uh, very important here. It's just how hard it was to make sure they were appeasing God on a regular basis. So first, let's look at the Passover, right? Let's look at the Passover. And we're going to actually look at the first institution of the Passover all the way back in Exodus. If you turn to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 3 through 13. And it's broken up on the screen, so you can follow along with me. Uh, then I'll explain kind of what's going on here a little bit. So this is, this is when, during the plagues in Egypt, right? Uh, this is the last plague where the angel of death is going to come uh, and take all of the firstborn, right? Uh, and God says, you know, put this on your door, put the blood on your doorposts so that he can pass over them. So this is when the Passover is instituted. So starting off here at verse 3 uh, in Exodus chapter 12, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Take note there that it says if the lamb was too small for the household, or sorry, if the household was too small for the lamb, I got that mixed up. That's, that's important, right? Uh, this lamb, there was never a question whether it would be enough for the household. It was whether the household you know, wasn't big enough to take all the blood of the lamb. And that's such an awesome thing when you look later at Jesus. So just to uh, uh, keep that in mind when we go forward. It says, uh, your lamb shall be without, without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Uh, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Uh, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the, of, of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat uh, the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head with its legs and its entrails, you shall let none of it remain until morning. Uh, and what remains of it uh, until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it uh, with a belt on your waist, <clears throat> your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, will see, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So if you know anything about this, this is a beautiful picture of what Christ did on the cross. Uh, this is pointing forward to that completely. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a moment. But first, let's also look at some of the tabernacle sacrifices. This is also important. Uh, so things keep getting more complicated for the children of Israel. Uh, the laws keep getting, you know, well, you gotta, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta not eat this, you gotta not eat that, you gotta uh, do this sacrifice for this sin, this sacrifice for that sin. Always they were doing sacrifices. Uh, this never really stopped. And specifically, once a year, they had to do this major sacrifice for all the children of Israel. And so if you go to Leviticus chapter 16, uh, verses 3 through 5, we'll see these tabernacle sacrifices here. It's, uh, it says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic uh, and the linen trousers on his body. Uh, he shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen tur turban uh, he shall be attired. These are holy garments, therefore he shall wash his body with water and put them on, uh, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel uh, two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And so uh, 
he not only has to, the priest not only has to perform this sacrifice for his own sins, if you read uh, all of basically Leviticus, Leviticus 16, uh, it shows us that, uh, he has to sacrifice for himself as well. So he has to sacrifice a bull for himself and then uh, a, a ram and a goat for the children of Israel. And so it's kind of, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing. Now you may say, well, there's two goats there. If you read, one of them gets set free. Um, which, that's another picture of salvation. But the reason why I'm getting into all of these Old Testament sacrifices here is I want you to just understand how complicated things were, how often they had to do all of these sacrifices just to be appeasing God for a time. Can you imagine bringing, you know, you've sinned, and you bring your sacrifice to the priest, and the priest does that sacrifice, and it's like, okay, you're, you're good with God for right now. But then on your way home, you're, you probably already sinned again by, by the time you've gotten home. So it just never stops. Never stops. Uh, th those, those fires uh, of the sacrifices, they were never out. That's a, that's a crazy thing to think about. But just imagine life at that time and the significance of all of these sacrifices here. It's really, and if you look at all these sacrifices, there's only one sacrifice uh, that is done. It's called the, the meat offering, kind of funny enough. It has nothing to do with meat. Uh, it, it's just, it's basically a grain offering. Uh, that is like above and beyond. That's like when we tithe versus when we give an offering. There's a difference there, right? Tithing is what is owed to God. An offering is what we give on top of that, right? Uh, but they did all of these blood sacrifices, right? That was to, you know, cover up their sins, right? And so what we see is that without blood, there can be no remission of sins. That was the lesson that was being taught to the children of Israel over and over and over again. And also the other lesson, you know, because the Bible says that the law was a schoolmaster. The other lesson is that they weren't enough, right? That, that whatever they did, it was not enough. They constant, there had to be these constant sacrifices. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Okay? So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So the penalty for sin, is God requires blood. That's, you know, that's what's required. What's the problem with all of these sacrifices then in the Old Testament? If they're doing these sacrifices and that, you know, puts them right with God for a time, why can't they just keep doing that, right? Well, because they're not perfect, right? They weren't enough. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 explains this uh, very plainly that these sacrifices weren't enough. and actually refers back to Leviticus and other, other things. It says, for the law, uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. So this is, the, the, what he's saying there is that the, all these things in the past, they were just a shadow of the things to come. So they were imitating what was going to come. So they weren't the perfect thing. They were just showing us what the perfect thing was going to be. 
So shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, uh, would have had no more uh, consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible with the blood of bulls and goats uh, that could take away sin, or sorry, could take away sins. So the writer of Hebrews is plainly saying, it's not possible with the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. That that is just pointing forward to what was going to come. So we talked about, you know, the Passover, how they put this blood of a lamb on their doorposts and everything, and then God would pass over them. That is a shadow of things to come. The bull that they would sacrifice, the priest would sacrifice for himself and his family, that was a shadow of things to come. It didn't actually take away their sins. Just basically was getting them by until Jesus would come. Now, why are these sacrifices are not why are these sacrifices not enough? Well, if you read through Hebrews, right, you'll see that these sacrifices were imperfect sacrifices in and of themselves, but also they were performed by men who were not perfect, right? These men had to make these sacrifices not only for everyone else, but they had to do it to cover their own sins as well. That makes the sacrifice not perfect. Also, uh, these sacrifices, they had to continually be performed, right? And so that's another aspect that shows us that they weren't perfect there, that these sacrifices weren't perfect, because they had to do it year after year after year after year, continually going before God to make atonement. So seeing all of that, now let's, let's look at the sacrifice of Jesus, right? So first of all, Jesus is the lamb for the sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why is that so significant? Well, think about Jesus, what he did. When he came to Jerusalem, he rode in you know, on Palm Sunday, right? Everybody looks at that. When he rode into Jerusalem, what day was it? Well, it was the 10th of Nisan, right? That was so the 10th of Nisan. That is their first month of the year. What day did it say to pick a lamb in Exodus? The 10th day, right? And they were to observe it for four days. What did they do with Jesus for four days? They observed him. They questioned him. They did all of these things. Then on the 14th of Nisan, they, the whole congregation of the children of Israel was to sacrifice the lamb. What did they do with Jesus? On the 14th day of Nisan, they sacrificed Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb. Notice even closer that it was the people, the congregation of Israel, that sacrificed Jesus. This is pretty significant there. So in Exodus, it says that the whole congregation of Israel 
were to sacrifice the lamb. Well, what does it say in Matthew chapter 27, verses 21 through 25, when, when Jesus and Barabbas are up there, and they, Pilate says, you need to pick one to let go, right? Well, they choose Barabbas to be let go. That, that's a beautiful picture, too, because when, it, when you talk about these sacrifices uh, in Leviticus, the goats specifically, the scapegoat there, one goat was picked to be sacrificed, and all the sins would be placed on that goat, right? And the other one would be let go. So that, what that's showing there is that one goat is going free, but all the sins are placed on the other one. What happens here with Jesus and Barabbas? Jesus is the one that's sacrificed and the sinner is let free. Matthew 27, verse 21 through 25, I want us to read this here. It says, The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. The governor, then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And then notice this. This last verse here, so powerful. All, then all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. His blood be on us and our children. That is exactly what was happening with the Lamb in Exodus. The whole congregation was to get together and sacrifice these lambs and then put it on the doorposts, right? And now they're saying to crucify the lamb. And they're saying his blood be on us and our children. Thank God that if you're saved, Jesus' blood is on you. I want us all to also to notice that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. So where it's said that the blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough, you have to know that Jesus' blood is enough for our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. It says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies excuse me, of the true into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself all often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, uh, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so all this blood that was shed before wasn't enough because one, you know, the, the priests that was performing it, they weren't perfect, 
The sacrifices weren't perfect. They had to do it all the time every year. Well, Jesus, as our high priest, is perfect. And he sacrificed himself. And he brought his blood not into the most holy place, which is a copy of heaven on earth. He brought his blood to the mercy seat, which is in heaven. And so his blood is completely enough for our sins. Why? Because he's the perfect high priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. And his blood only had to be offered once and for all. So Jesus is sufficient. That's what it means when we say Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It means that he was completely enough to cover our sins. He's completely enough to cover our sins in the past. He's completely enough to cover our sins in the present. And he is completely enough to cover all of our sins in the future. He only had to offer himself once. But notice in this verse, that it, it, in the verse that we're going through today, uh, John 2.2, 2, it also says that, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's an awesome thing, too. That needs to be remembered as well. You know, we as saved individuals, Jesus' blood covers us, right? That's easy for us to understand. But also, we have to understand that Jesus' blood was enough to cover the sins of the entire world. But what is required is that we accept that payment, right? And so let's go through the whole thing here right now with to understand that Jesus' blood was enough for the whole world. Because some people don't believe that, by the way. Some people believe that Jesus' blood is just for the elect, right? God specifically chose a few people, and Jesus' blood covers them. But we have to understand that Jesus' blood covers everyone. Remember that lamb in Exodus, right? That lamb in Exodus, I remember I said to point that out, right? Or remember that. That lamb, it says if the lamb was too much for a household, right? Or if the household was too small for the lamb. So it never was a question whether or not the lamb would be enough for a household. It's whether it's too much, right? Well, Jesus, the lamb without spot and blemish, his blood is enough for the whole world. You know, it's not just for a few, it's for everyone. And what's interesting also about that passage is it says you can take a, a lamb from the goat or the sheep, right? You know that, that the goats were a lot cheaper, right? So God was not partial to anyone. That blood was going to be applied to whoever. So let's look at this. God created man, right? That's an easy thing to understand, right? God created man. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, had cre God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. 
he created them. So right off the bat there, there's something different about mankind than the rest of creation. There's something special about that. God loves specifically mankind. Now, God sees everything else and that it's good, but specifically mankind, he puts over everything else. So God really loves mankind. But then there's a problem. Tragedy strikes. Man sins against God. Man sins. You know, if you think that you're special or whatever, or some people don't, right? It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So man sins. Everyone is a sinner. So everybody's still with me right now. God created man. Every person on the earth is a sinner. Here's where I might lose some people. Even in his sinful state, God still loves man. God still loves man. You know, if God didn't love man, even as sinners, he wouldn't have sent his son to die. John 3.16, most famous verse in the world. For God so loved the world, I mean, we repeat that, for God so loved the world, some people like to replace there, say, God, for God so loved the elect or whatever, but the world means the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, remember, whoever there <laughs> believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, that means everyone. Whoever means everyone should not perish but have everlasting life. So God gave his son for the entire world. Now here's the thing though. We also need to understand that God is completely just. And so there still has to be a payment made sin. That's why God gave his son to make that payment. But we will be judged on whether or not we accept that payment. Romans 6.23 There still is a penalty for sin. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God still loves man, but there still has to be a payment for sin. And God provided his son for that payment. God provided his son for that payment. You're all still with me, right? Every, you know, everybody watching should still be with me. Payment has been made. Now, this is where I may lose some. Payment has been made for all sin. Payment has been made for all sin. This is... A beautiful thing and a very sad thing at the same time. Payment has been made for everyone's sins. Do you know that people that die and go to hell, payment was made for their sin. They just didn't accept it. How sad is that? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for every sin that, would, that had ever been committed and would ever be committed. All of it. What that means is that reconciliation is available for all of mankind. 
we've talked about you know, the court case kind of analogy before, uh, where you know a lot of people think that when you die, there's going to be this trial uh, of you know whether or not you know you, you did good or bad or whatever. That's not the case, right? That's not the case. There's not a trial when you die. There's a sentencing when you die. Any anybody that understands the court system understands that there's two court times that when you do something wrong, there's two times you go to court. You go to court, really, to prove whether you're, uh, whether you're guilty or not. And then after you're found guilty, you go to court again to get the sentencing. So when we die, that's, we're, we're already found guilty, by the way. Everybody has been found guilty. So when we die and we stand before God, that's not a trial. That's your sentencing. Now, the sentence for everyone is hell. Sentence for everyone is hell. But remember we talked about Jesus, our advocate, right? Well, our advocate stood, be, is, stood before the judge, stood, stands before God. Jesus is standing before God saying, I paid for it. Now, in life, you have an opportunity of whether or not to accept that payment. But the sentence is really the same for everyone. It's just, Jesus already paid it, are you going to accept it? And that's the sad thing, is that when Jesus, again, Jesus died on the cross for every single person. But not everybody accepts it. All the people in hell, it was paid for. All you had to do was say yes. It's a very sad thing. I want to read John 3.16 again, but I'm going to go through 18 because a lot of times people forget the two verses that come after that. You know, a lot of people go, well, how can a good God send people to hell? Well, that good God is also just. And you have to understand, uh, you're condemned already if you don't accept Christ. John 3.16 through 18. This sheds light on verse 16 more. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. People look at that and go, wow. Read the next verse. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, sorry, but that the world through him might be saved. Wow, again, that's awesome. The next verse. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So let me tell you what that means. Right? It's what we've been saying. You are condemned already. God sent his Son to come and pay for that for you. You're already, in this life, you are already destined for hell. But God sent his son so that you don't have to go there. So all you have to do is accept him. I was talking about this with my wife. Another good analogy for this is think about the, if you were drowning in the ocean. You're, you're floundering around and there's a boat that comes by. And that boat throws a lifeline out for you. Right? Are you going to say, well... No, I'm not going to grab that, right? That's what Jesus did. Jesus is that lifeline. You can either drown 
you were already drowning, you can either continue to drown and die, or you can grab onto that and have life. That's the option there. You don't wait for another boat to come, or you don't wait for anything else. There is one way to be saved, and that's just grab onto Jesus. That's it. Say, Lord, save me, and you will be. So what I want to end with today as the pianist and song leader come, I want to read our verses again today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. I want us to see that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, right? As believers, he's the propitiation for the sins of the world. Well, let's make it personal. He is the propitiation for your sins. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so think about this this morning. Salvation is available to everyone. Do not make the decision that you're just going to drown. Grab onto the lifeline that has been provided for you. It is the only one that has come along or will ever come along. You won't get another chance. There's not some other way to be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not because of anything that you can do in this life or have done in this life. It's because of him. And so turn to Jesus, admit that you're a sinner, and ask him to save you. That's all you have to do, and you will be saved. Repent and believe. Do that this morning and you will be saved. He is, has already paid that price for you. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord. Do that this morning if you have not already.